Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Her debut novel, Lilac Girls, sold one million copies and landed on the New York Times bestsellers list for weeks. Now author Martha Hall Kelly brings readers back into the lives of the Faraday family, a family with roots in Connecticut. Today Where We Live, we preview Martha's new book, Lost Roses. The book is inspired by true events. This time she focuses on another strong woman, Eliza Faraday. Eliza is the mother of sociolite Caroline Faraday, who readers embraced in Lilac Girls. Now in Lost Roses, Kelly follows three women from St. Petersburg to Paris as the world is on the brink of World War II. And later, we're going to talk with a historian from Fairfield University about the events Martha Hall Kelly writes about in her book. First, I want to welcome her back into our studio. Martha, so good to see you. So good to see you, too, Lucy. So uh, remind us again about uh, the Faraday family, because uh, while I know uh, many listeners have read your book, Lilac Girls, uh, there's uh, quite a story with this family. And tell us about how you first encountered them. Well, I went up to the Bellamy Faraday House and Gardens in Bethlehem, Connecticut, just to see the garden. And it was lilac time, and all the lilacs were out, and it was just incredible. My mom had just passed away, and I she loved lilacs so much, so I thought it would be a great way to honor her. And then I just took the tour of the house. I was the only person on the tour that day. And I discovered Caroline Faraday's story, how she brought a group of Polish Catholic women who had survived Ravensburg concentration camp. She brought them to the U.S. for treatment, and I wrote Lilac Girls after that. And so Caroline, uh, she was an actress, and she spent most of her time in New York and abroad, but she had this uh, uh, this summer home in Bethlehem, Connecticut? She did. Actually, her father was the one that really wanted to buy that house, and her mother, Eliza, um, objected to it. And, and sadly, he passed away very early on. He barely got to spend any time at the house, and she ended up loving the house. And Caroline, of course, it became her pride and joy. And they both uh, built the garden there, which now is famous. People come from all over. And that house was bequeathed to uh, Connecticut Landmark, so they now operate it, and there's public tours. But back when you visited, uh, was it uh, very well known? Not at all. Some people, even in Bethlehem, didn't really know what that house was all about. And they even buried the Caroline part of it on the tour because it is the Bellamy Faraday House. Uh, uh, Joseph Bellamy was the um, star of the show at the beginning, And then once Lilac Girls came out, people visiting there wanted to know more about Caroline. So they made more of the tour about her. I remember when uh, you were here last, you talked how, about how much you fell in love with Caroline Faraday. Uh, but this new book, Lost Roses, uh, really focuses on uh, three women, one of them being Eliza Mitchell Faraday, Caroline's mother. Why did you decide to focus on her? Well, once Lilac Girls, I felt, was launched, and I went back to my publisher and said, what if I write two more uh, books about this family? Because I had done so much research, and I loved them. And I said, I want to go back in time for the first book uh, and do a prequel about Caroline's mom, Eliza, because I got so much 
male about her. People loved her. She's just a real um, spirited person. And I, and they said, sure, go ahead. And then one day I was, I, I had started the book, but I still wasn't 100% in. And um, I was doing an AARP photo shoot. And they asked me to sit at Caroline's desk, which they have on a landing at the house just as she left it. And I opened the drawer just while the cameraman was, while the photographer was setting up. And I found this uh, yellowed newspaper clipping. And it featured Caroline when she was younger, maybe 14, 15. And she was wearing a Russian kokoshnik, you know, the tiara, and Russian folk dress. And she was cradling a doll. And the whole story was about Eliza Faraday, her mother, had turned their New York apartment into a bazaar, and people could come in. It was a permanent sale where people could come in and buy these Russian handmade goods that these countesses and princesses had um, made, and the proceeds would go to them. So I realized that's how Caroline learned her philanthropy uh, from her mom, and I was off, off and running. So you saw old photos, clippings, and were you also getting letters from other people about the work that Eliza did? I I talked to, once Lilac Girls was published, I got to talk to a lot of family members, and um, they told me about Eliza, and I also um, started digging into Russian emigres that um, were still alive, that um, had come over from Russia, and uh, that helped me a lot with the book. In studio with me today is Martha Hall Kelly, a New York Times bestselling author of Lilac Girls. That was her debut novel. Her new novel, it's a prequel to Lilac Girls. It's called Lost Roses. You can go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live to read an excerpt of this book. Uh, so I mentioned one of the characters being Eliza Faraday, but you also weave into this story uh, two other women, uh, the, the same kind of framework that you had for Lilac Girls, focusing on, on three women. So tell us about the other characters characters and why you decided to tell the story like this. Well, I knew I wanted the same format, the three women point of view, first person point of view. And I had Eliza already. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to show, just like I did with one of the rabbits, to show one of the Russian women. And I had read a lot of memoirs. And I thought, I'll make a composite character like I did in um, Lilac Girls of uh, all of these friends, these um, white Russian emigres who had to leave Russia with, with nothing except the clothes on their back, really. And I read a wonderful memoir by a woman named Edith Solahub, and she was a countess in um, Russia, and she lost everything. And it's the story of how she came back from it, and I loved her attitude and her voice. And I, I pretty much um, based the character of Sophia, Eliza's best friend, on her. And then I wanted a third character, a Russian peasant girl, um, kind of like the Herta Oberhauser character. Um, somebody has to bring danger into the novel, and that's Varinka. She is um, she has a very tough life herself, and uh, I based that on some other reading that I had done of of peasant girls of that time. Mm. I understand that you developed a character wall in the process of writing this book, Lost Roses. Explain what, what you did exactly as you developed these characters. I wanted to do the same types of things that I did for Lilac Girls, kind of superstitiously. And I loved the, I, I saw on the internet somewhere that writers should um, print out pictures of what they think their characters look like and put them 
up. So um, I did that in my um, office, and I put all the different characters all around. I didn't realize um, that I had chosen Tom Brady as one of them, and somebody (laughs) later said, you know, as a fawn, you have uh, Tom Brady, and I thought, I'm from Massachusetts. I should know better, but I didn't even know that was him. I just picked an attractive man. And a fawn is Sophia's husband in the book, uh, Lost Roses. Um, uh, How long did it take you to write this book? You know, it took me less time than Lilac Girls because I didn't know what I was doing with Lilac Girls. It was my first novel. I didn't know that you should really have an outline. I would just write scenes and then throw them out if it didn't work in terms of the timeline. So the first thing I did was a timeline, and I have a giant one. Uh, and, and that was super helpful. And I realized you have to do it in pencil because you have to keep erasing. And um, I think that was one of the most helpful things that I did. Uh, this has been described as historical fiction uh, because it's based on true events and, and real people. Uh, why this uh, format versus a straight biography of the Faraday women? You know, uh, there, there wasn't enough information about Caroline, really. She was researching other people. She was researching Reverend Bellamy and the rabbits and her to Oberhauser. So that was really good for me. But there, there wasn't really enough information about the family, I didn't think, to make it compelling. And also, once I got going, I didn't, I didn't want to be um, hamstrung by just uh, doing nonfiction. It was so much fun to kind of recreate her world. It was fun to read, too. Uh, my producer and I were talking about it was a breath of fresh air because we read so much nonfiction in our jobs, uh, to, but to learn again about the, the Faraday family and their roots in Connecticut. And you really are drawn in uh, to this novel, uh, Lost Roses. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, my guest today, Martha Hall Kelly. Uh, she wrote Lilac Girls, the prequel to this novel. is out this week, Lost Roses. You can read an excerpt of it on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can also join our conversation as I continue uh, speaking with Martha Hall Kelly after the break. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Did you read Lilac Girls? The book was a New York Times bestseller. Now a prequel to Lilac Girls is out this week. It's called Lost Roses. The author of both books is my guest today in studio, Martha Hall Kelly. She's also a Connecticut resident. You can join our conversation. Have you been to the Bellamy Faraday House in Bethlehem? Have you read Lilac Girls? Um, Are you one of the early ones who've picked up the book and read Lost Roses? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And as I mentioned earlier, you can also to read an excerpt of Lost Roses on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Martha, in the book, uh, we learn about Eliza Faraday, again, the mother of Caroline Faraday. And she has a a tragic uh, event happen in her life where she loses her husband, Henry, uh, to uh, illness. But also in the book, um, you almost talk, you parallel that with how Eliza went on to help save a Russian emigre named Nancy from a seemed a similar illness. Can you talk a little bit about that character, Nancy, what you're trying to convey? It was one of the saddest moments, I think, for both Caroline Faraday and her mother, Eliza, when Henry Faraday passed away from pneumonia. And in those days, I mean, it made me really appreciate antibiotics so much more. I mean, you would just, of course, die in two days from pneumonia, and that's what happened. 
So I think it was always a wound for Liza because her mother was a nurse in, in the Civil War, and it was um, a big part of their family pride that they had all these remedies and things. And she tries to save Henry, but she can't. So later, there's a Russian woman who arrives, and she's living in a re- really terrible part of New York City. She gets pneumonia, and um, Eliza has figured out uh, how to how to help a person with pneumonia and what you do and you don't mm-hmm. do. And um, she saves her, where her mother was really the one that was known for being the healer. And in this scene, she helps Nancy and, and, and kind of takes back some of that mm-hmm. pride. Uh, would you mind reading that excerpt for us? Oh, I'd love to. Again, this is author Martha Hall Kelly reading from her new book, Lost Roses. Against the windowed wall lay a light-haired woman on a thin, blue-striped mattress, piled high with coverlets and heavy overcoats of all kinds. Several women huddled around the mattress, and two knelt in the corner at prayer. I placed the back of my hand on the woman's forehead. How long has she been this hot? Our patient looked up at me, face flushed. Where had I seen that face, those aquamarine eyes? The Immigration Bureau detention room that day. A woman in the corner raised her hand. She's been this way two hours or so. She shivered so bad we covered her, said another. Please, everyone must leave, I said. How many times had I seen Mother clear the room before she performed one of her medical miracles? I glanced at the girl on the mattress. This was our Russian Nancy? Such an American name. The woman hurried out, and I crouched near Nancy's head. What to do? Peg came to my side. Well... Another terrible cough racked the girl. I froze. Was it pneumonia? I pulled a coat back to examine Nancy's face, the bluish lips, just like Henry. I stripped off my own coat and rolled up my shirt sleeves. Take everything off her peg. Peg hesitated. But she's cold. You must take off the coats and I'll open that window. She needs air in her lungs. Peg pulled the coats off the girl and I stood on the chair and opened the eyebrow window a crack. Let's sit her up, take off that wet shirt and tap her back. Peg and I patted the girl's back, and Peg fetched hot water in a basin and laid it next to the mattress. Wait for the water to cool, I said. Must be tepid. A cold bath sets the fever. Soon I ripped a piece of my sleeve, dipped it in the cooling water, and ran it down Nancy's cheek and neck. We repeated our system of back patting, bathing her in tepid water, and fanning clean air in her face. And before long, the pink color started to come back to her lips. Nancy mumbled something in Russian. Maybe she's thirsty, Peg said. I held the canteen to her lips and she drank. As the sun set and the room darkened, her terrible coughing lessened, and we watched Nancy's chest move up and down, her breathing leveling off. I opened Mother's black bag, pulled out a thermometer, and slid it under Nancy's arm. As I waited for the silver silver ribbon of mercury to climb, I tucked a lock of my hair behind her ear. A lock of hair behind her ear. What a lovely young woman. Why had she come so far from her home? She wore a wedding ring. What about her husband? Maybe she knew something about Sophia. I slid the thermometer out and checked it. 100. Her fever's coming down. Peg crossed herself, thanks to God. All at once, I heard Mother's voice from the hallway and rushed in. I came as soon as I heard Mother said, unbuttoning her coat. No wonder she's sick here in this wretched place. Peg turned to Mother. Thank you for coming, but the crisis is done for. Eliza saved her. Mother turned to me, the light from the window catching a glint of tear in her eye. Of course you did, she said. 
Again, that's from the new book, Lost Roses, by Martha Hall Kelly, who's in studio with me here on Where We Live. So that moment was really catalyzing for Eliza. She went on to help other uh, Russian emigres. Yes, I think she was so insecure after she couldn't save Henry and his death. I think in the book is really moving. A lot of people have been telling me because they they really got to love Henry in the book and then he dies. But yeah, it gave her the confidence after that, I think, to really help other people. And I was very interested in the mourning process in this book, especially for women in that era, World War I, where, you know, they basically had to go into hiding for at least a year, sometimes two. Men, they wore a black armband and, you know, for a week and that was it. But women, and I think that was a big part of her mourning process with Henry. She just kind of lost her confidence completely. And this is a a big part of her getting that confidence back. Have you always been drawn to history? No, I I was such a bad history student in high school. I remember my history teacher, who was a man in ninth grade, saying, why are you just not into this class? And I I didn't really understand it until I went to an all-girls school in Massachusetts, and I had a female history Mm -hmm. teacher. And she just made it so much more interesting from a woman's point of view. And after that, I really loved history. I wanted to learn more about the research uh, that you put into uh, this book, Lost Roses. Um, You traveled all over. Again, you live in Connecticut, but you also went to France, Germany, Poland. Tell us about uh, your your stops. Well, for Lilac Girls, I went to see where the rabbits were from in Poland. I brought my son with me. I bribed him. I told him he could have one beer because he was 17, and that was legal at the time, and he was uh, very happy to do that. Uh, We went also to see Ravensburg Concentration Camp, and that was essential to writing that novel. So when I started writing Lost Roses, which is about Russia, some some parts of it, I thought, I have to go to Russia. And uh, I brought my husband this time. It was an unbelievable trip. And since Sophia is a cousin to the czar, we had to see every palace. I mean, the czar had so many, but, you know, we visited as many as we could. And to see the excess for yourself, I mean, we all know that the czar, you know, that was a big part of why the Bolshevik Revolution happened was his excesses, and he just didn't understand the peasants were starving. And um, so to see it for yourself was really incredible. The amber room, a whole room in a palace covered with amber. And it, the room next to it, the sapphire room covered in sapphire. I mean, it was just crazy. But we also saw uh, really lovely little rural villages, which was helpful to write Varenka. And then I passed in a first draft to my editor, and she said, we need more Paris. Because at the end, they all converge in Paris, which is, I think, really a wonderful way to end the book. So I had to go back to Paris. Really tough work. But I discovered a really interesting place in Paris called Rue Daru, and it is where all the Russian emigres came with nothing, these very wealthy people that had nothing, and they all clustered around Um, the Alexander Nevsky Cathedral, which is a Russian Orthodox church there, which is this grand church. And today you can still go to Rue de Rue if you're going to be in Paris soon. Mm -hmm. You can see all their restaurants that they used to frequent, and they're all abandoned now. So it's kind of a ghost town. It's really interesting. So Rue de Rue is a big part of the book, too. Mm. 
The character of Sophia, again, uh, she was a member of the aristocracy. Uh, and throughout the book, uh, you, you notice that you know, she has more optimism about uh, what's happening in Russia and thinking that um, she and her family will be safe. But I was curious, uh, in your research, um, you know, looking into Russian emigres and their story, uh, what did you want to convey with how uh, so- Sophia's uh, mindset about everything would be okay, but it turned out not to be so? She really had, in my research, I found that a lot of the aristocracy, they knew what was happening on one level, but they were really in denial. I wanted to show that it's really important to understand what's happening. That whole analogy of the frog in the water and it boils, I think that was kind of how they were. And Eliza comes and she sees, uh, that's the beauty of a three-point-of-view novel, she comes and sees the situation in St. Petersburg and knows that it's really dangerous and bad, but Sophia and her family, they say, oh, you know, revolutions have happened before. It's not that big of a deal. So I was really uh, surprised at that I, in my research that the they didn't take it seriously, mm-hmm. and the czar didn't either, and that's, you know, a big part of his downfall. And coming up, we're going to learn more about uh, some of the history behind uh, this book setting, Lost Roses. Uh, Martha Hall Kelly, the author, uh, in studio with me today here on Where We Live. Again, this is a prequel to the best-selling novel, Lilac Girls, if you've read that book and are, are looking forward to learning more about the Faraday family. I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about about uh, Eliza's relationship uh, with her mother and this idea of, again, wanting to help these uh, Russian emigres. But was there a tension there bringing them uh, to the states, especially because they were from a, a wealthy uh, uh, population, especially uh, there's a scene about um, in Long Island, I believe, where uh, you know people weren't happy uh, with uh, these uh, emigres living among them. Well, I wanted to show the connection to today with immigration. And I actually started writing this five years ago. So immigration really just recently has become a much bigger thing. But I thought it was really interesting how they met a lot of opposition out in Southampton, where Eliza's mother had this beautiful cottage on Gin Lane. It's still standing the house. And by cottage, uh, it was not really a cottage. It slept 30 people. It's this magnificent home on this very Tony Street. And Eliza brought her Russian immigrant friends out there, and it was not received well. And anyone that was not American, and these women did not speak English a lot of times, you know, they spoke beautiful French, and they were aristocratic women, but they were not uh, well received in many cases. And um, her mother even, who was a very philanthropic, generous, loving woman, had had a bad experience with a Russian, um, I don't want to give too much away, but she was not big on it either. She didn't want all these women living in their house, but there is a change there. Um, you know, she comes to accept it in, I think, an interesting way. And how did the the Faradays, specifically Eliza, balance uh, this, the conflict in Russia with what was going on at home as the U.S. got involved in World War One? Well, she saw what was going on over in Russia and was a big Russian supporter. And she and her mother both were very supportive of the U.S. getting into the war. But we dragged our feet for so long. And um, I think she was really happy when we finally entered the war. She was also a big Francophile and wanted to support France in a big way, which, of course, was given passed down to Caroline. Mm.
Again, uh, we're talking with Martha Hall Kelly, uh, author of this new book, Lost Roses, a prequel to the New York Times bestselling uh, novel, Lilac Girls. Uh, you can join us uh, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. I'm curious, uh, as you're writing uh, this book um, and, again, developing these characters, uh, you mentioned that you did a lot of reading and came up with composite characters uh, based on your research. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, if you drew out uh, some of, of uh, your uh, family's history in any of these characters or even the crafts uh, that they were involved in? Well, my father's mother, Grandma Hall, was a, um, a seamstress, and I loved watching her work, and I loved the clothes she made for us. Uh, she died when I was five, but I, re- I still remember her sitting at her uh, sewing machine and the beautiful coats she used to make with the velvet collars. So for some reason, I always write about someone that's a seamstress in my books just because I love bringing that back to life. And in this case, it is Varinka's mother, who is a, a lot of the Russian women, when they came to Paris, they worked for the great houses of couture. And in this case, she ends up working at Lanvin, which in Paris, which is kind of fun. Um, so that's how I incorporate it in this book. Uh, as you're writing, uh, there, was there a particular character that you were really drawn to besides Eliza? Oh, that's always so hard. Um, yes, I really loved Luba. That is uh, Sophia's little sister. And she's really smart for her age. And I just think really fun. Everybody that reads it, they, Luba, is, is, they're in love with her. And it's so funny. You can't plan that kind of thing when you write a novel. It just... It just happens. And so my editor said, what would you think about writing a prologue for the beginning? And I was really stumped. I didn't know how to write a prologue for this book. And she wanted to show the the friendship between Sophia and Eliza to start out with that. And my husband said, why not just use Luba? Because you end the book with her. Why not start with the little sister? And so I did, and I just love the way that it came out. Uh, we got a tweet from Kathleen uh, who writes, very excited for this next book. She said, I read Lilac Girls in two days. It was so engrossing. Wow. Have Kathleen, you... that's super fast reading. <laughs> now, um, have you heard from readers already? And what are what are their thoughts on, on this uh, prequel? It's so much fun. It's so different from Lilac Girls because as a debut author, nobody knew who I was. And then thanks to you and other people over two years, Lilac Girls became a, a, a hit. But this time, the anticipation has been unbelievable. And people have, um, they got their books at midnight and they read it very quickly and now there's already 60 or so reviews on Amazon. It's just amazing. It's so fun. What's that like? What's the pressure like? Uh, Again, you were, that was your debut novel, Lilac Girls. It was a a worldwide success. Uh, Were you nervous with this book coming out? Yes. It's a different kind of terror, though. I think the first time around, I just didn't know anything. I, I was such a green bean. And I got a late start in this. I started writing in my late 50s. So, um, yeah, but this time I know the process, but it is nerve-wracking with a sophomore effort. Everybody talks about the second book is always the hardest. And I feel good that I have that down now. Now that I have that accomplished, it, it feels good.
You said you got a, a late start that you began writing in your 50s, uh, but uh, again, it was such a successful uh, book. Uh, do you feel like your story uh, gives confidence to other aspiring writers that, you know, no, you know, you don't have to begin at a certain time. It's just finding that uh, that uh, kernel of interest and then and building a story around it that's engrossing to many people. I always am so happy after a book talk when people come up to me and say, I've always wanted to write a novel. I've always wanted to open a business. Now I feel like I can go do that. And I I hope it's inspiring to a lot of people. I get a lot of mail that says that it is. Also, a lot of mail that are inspired by Caroline and Eliza to go just do good things. And I really love that kind of mail. You were writing uh, while you were the mother of three children. Uh, now they're grown. Well, I they were out of the nest by the time the book came out. But I was I was writing it. Uh, my my two daughters were in college, but my son was in high school down in Atlanta. My husband went to work for the Weather Channel down there, and um, so he was around when I was writing it. He's very sensitive, and he would come out of school, and I would pick him up, and he'd say, "Mom, have you been writing her to chapters? She's the bad <laughs> Nazi doctor, yes, and, and my that girl." So they had to go through some, you know pain and suffering while I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Well, who did you get support from? The whole family was incredible. At first they thought I was insane because I would just sit at my computer and write from seven to seven, and they were a little worried about mom, and I had always focused on them so much. And all of a sudden, I was I was doing my thing, and so I think they, they were surprised by that. But they read every chapter, and my husband especially has been unbelievable. He's such a great partner. And he would cook for me, and around 7 o'clock I would smell garlic and then, you know, emerge from my my writing lair. And it's gotten to the point now where he loves the Civil War, and he cannot wait for the next book. And he's literally at my office door saying, you know, do you have pages? So it's a lot of fun now. You know, it's a it's it's a nice partnership. That's a, a good trans, uh, transition uh, to my next question. If you could talk a little bit about uh, your next project again, it, it, there's a, a line to the Faraday family. Absolutely, I've I've known I was going to write about the Wolseley family for a while. And I've done so much research on uh, Caroline and Eliza, you cannot help running into the stories of the Wolseley women because there's such a strong force in, in both Eliza and Caroline's life. And Caroline's great-grandmother, Jane Eliza, was um, this incredible matriarch of this family. She had seven daughters and then one son, finally, but sadly, um, the son was born after the father passed away because in, in those days, uh, you could commute from New York to Boston, where they lived at the time, by steamer. Mm-hmm. And his boat um, caught fire at sea and he passed away when the seven little girls um, were young. And she was pregnant with her eighth child, which was a boy, and he was born after mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Wolseley died. So that was a horrible thing for them. They were very wealthy. But it was a terrible, you know, to be left without your husband and father. So they moved to New York City, and they were staunch abolitionists because when they were young, their mother, they, they, some of them went to Charleston, and they saw a slave auction. And that's how the book opens, uh, with them witnessing that, and it changed them forever. And um, it's told from the point of view of one of the daughters, so that would be Caroline's great aunt, George Ann Woolsey, 
who was a nurse at Gettysburg, and her mother was with her for the Sanitation Commission. Have you been spending a lot of time in Gettysburg? I have. This? I have with my son again. We're reunited um, to do some research, and oh, it's just. I've never cried so much. I was telling my daughter, uh, with the other books, uh, I mean, it was always very sad. But um, with this one, it's personal because it's the United States. The others were Poland and Russia. And it's just such a tragic time. And I feel in, in some ways things have not really changed that much. I also, one of the characters is an enslaved girl from a plantation down in Maryland. So um, I've based it on a plantation called Sauterly, and um, it's a museum now, so I've spent a lot of time there, too. Martha Hall Kelly is my guest here on Where We Live. She's the New York Times bestselling author of Lilac Girls. We've been talking about her new book out this week, Lost Roses. You can read an excerpt on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, we talked earlier about um, why you like historical fiction versus uh, biographies. Are there other uh, historical fiction writers that inspire you? I love Lisa C. She just came out with, I think it's the Island of Sea Woman. She is, she's just so good and um, has always inspired me. But my gateway drug into the world (laughs) of historical fiction was Amy Tan. I really loved her books. And I go back all the way to Rosamund Pilcher. Um, You're too young to remember um, Shell Seekers, but that was... um, I love that book. I just, I love historical fiction. Although lately I've been reading um, a lot of Civil War difficult things, like about embalming and things. So I, I've been gravitating more towards, you know, lighter things that kind of um, make me laugh a little bit more. Do you feel like uh, this next book and your other books are very much geared toward women? And um, how will this next book maybe push back against that generalization that, you know, women aren't really interested in history, especially history involving wars? I think that's, you know, I felt that way, frankly. I was not that interested in, in school in the bombs and the planes and the treaties and the dates and things. But I think that... Um, if it's one thing that readers tell me, it's they love learning about the period through a story about women. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just going to keep writing about women. Somebody asked me at the launch event, will you ever write from a male point of view? And I just said, no. And they were <laughs> cracking up. But it was it's the truth. I really, I, I think that men wrote about men for centuries. And it's, it's time, um, in my case anyway, to explore all of these lost stories that never got told. So uh, again, Lost Rose is a prequel to Lilac Girls. The uh, next novel you're working on is a prequel again, uh, following uh, Caroline's great-grandmother. I'm just curious if, um, will you be trying to find ways to continue writing about this family? Will that be be it? And you'll have to try it, start a focus on a a new uh, woman. I think that's it. Yeah. It's um, going to be a nice trilogy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could go back further, but there's really not that much information. I'd have to make too much of it up. And I love the, the hidden history, the, the truth behind the stories. And I have two new projects that I'm moving on to. I'm already writing them. So, Martha Hall Kelly is my guest today, the best-selling author of Lilac Girls, the prequel to that story out this week, Lost Roses. Read an excerpt on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to learn more about the history behind the book setting. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, today, my guest is Martha Hall Kelly, the New York Times bestselling author of Lilac Girls. We've been talking about her new book, Lost Roses. And uh, we wanted to learn more uh, context about the time period Martha was writing about. So joining us by phone is Dr. David McFadden, professor of history and director of the Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies program at Fairfield University. Dr. McFadden, welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we were learning about, um, in Martha's book, she talks about the white Russian emigres that were helped by Eliza Faraday and others. Could you tell us more about who the white Russians were versus the so-called red Russians? Yes, the white Russians, uh, the, the, the term emerged during the civil war in Russia. Um, the white Russians were anyone who opposed the Bolsheviks this included monarchists that wanted to restore the czar. It included Democrats. Um, it included uh, even a number of socialists who were anti-Bolshevik. The Red Russians were those who supported the Bolshevik Party, and that included some left-wing socialist revolutionaries. So the terms really emerged in 1918 when the Civil War started, and that's really when the major immigration of uh, white Russians, everyone who opposed the Bolsheviks, uh, began to Europe and to the United States. Uh, we learn in Martha Hall Kelly's book, Lost Roses, many of these emigres ended up in Paris. Where else did they settle, Dr. McFadden? Uh, they went to Berlin. They went to Geneva um, and to New York. Those were the major cities. And more about the tension uh, that was in Russia at the time. Uh, uh, Martha mentioned, you know, that the peasants were suffering, they were starving, and the aristocracy, uh, they really didn't seem to care. Absolutely true. Um, you know, from the time of, where well, really the turn of the century, the preliminaries to the revolution of 1905, the situation in the countryside was dire. In fact, there was a famine in 1891 another one in 1905, and then in 1917. And during the summer of 1917, uh, the peasants really revolted in the countryside, burning manor houses and uh, really taking the land for themselves, which they felt was their, uh, you know, their right. So um, the social revolutionary, the social revolution in Russia uh, really began to heat up in the summer of 1917 and continued through the whole Civil War period up into the early 1920s. I understand uh, that uh, part of the seed to that revolution uh, started in 1905, which you mentioned. Tell us what was happening then. Well, in 1905, it was very interesting. There was a, a real, I, I call it the, the lost opportunity for Russia's democracy because you had a very widely supported uh, petition campaign, banquet campaign, led by the liberals and the intelligentsia, but with support of the socialist parties and support of the peasants, which was calling on the government to allow freedom of speech and to have a, uh, a national parliament, the Duma, and finally, in October, after a massive general strike, uh, the Tsar agreed and al allowed 
the formation and elections for the Duma and uh, freedom of speech in the press. That situation continued uh, with a lot of restrictions that the Tsar put on the Duma uh, clear up until uh, 1917. And then in February and March of 17, there were massive strikes and uh, demonstrations and a mutiny of the St. Petersburg garrison that finally uh, overthrew the Tsar. And then you had chaos and social revolution all during the spring and summer of 1917 until uh, the Bolsheviks took over in October. Uh, you mentioned the Tsar. This was Nicholas II? Yes, Nicholas II. Uh, you know, the, the, the historical record on Nicholas II is, is quite interesting. Uh, most uh, historians say that he really didn't like being Tsar. He was not decisive. He was very, uh, you know, changing his mind all the time and under the influence of advisors, including Alexandra and then Rasputin. So, you know, one of the great questions about the Russian Revolution is, did the autocracy fall or was it pushed? That is, is social revolution more important or was it corruption and and just mistakes on the part of the czar. And it's both. It's both, of course. I mean, one uh, beautiful story is uh, in 1916, when he saw that the army was not doing well against the Germans on the Eastern Front, he went and personally took charge of the troops and suffered a, 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 a horrendous defeat. And so... It was like everything he touched didn't work. On the phone with me, Dr. David McFadden, professor of history and director of the Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies program at Fairfield University. Uh, we're learning a little bit of uh, Russian uh, history uh, to get more context behind uh, this new book, Lost Roses by Martha Hall Kelly. Uh, Martha, there's a moment in your book uh, when Eliza questions this character, Nancy, who we learned about earlier, about the Americanness of her name. In the book, Nancy says, just a precaution, some think the Reds will not rest until they've done us all in, no matter where we are, to make sure we don't come back and overthrow them. Was that a reality for many emigres? They were worried that no matter where they fled, that they would uh, be targeted and killed, possibly? Well, they definitely were sitting on their suitcases, they yeah. say. Um, they thought they were going to go back. And they were afraid that they were being targeted, uh, especially when they were in Paris. But I think that they they were paranoid in a way that they would be uh, track down. Dr. McFadden, uh, we were learning again about the long history of unrest in Russia. What are some common uh, misunderstandings of, of Russia in the early 20th century? What do your uh, students uh, think about the role of Vladimir Lenin in any of this? Well, uh, many of my students, and it must occur in some high school history books, come to me and say that Lenin overthrew the czar. And that just ignores the six months of uh, social revolution from February, March to October, November. Now, what is in fact true is that the Tsar and his family were imprisoned and sent to the Ural Mountains, and then local Bolsheviks uh, killed them. So, you know, there's just the germ of truth to, to mask 
the uh, you know the mistake. Uh, when you were talking about uh, the Russian Revolution, uh, what is the legacy of that and the Civil War, and how it influenced other countries, uh, Dr. McFadden? Well, the uh, the Russian Revolution had a very long uh, influence. Uh, it certainly influenced the the China China's Revolution in 1949, uh, Vietnam's in 1956, and even as far down as uh, Iran in 1979, uh, there's an enduring sense. It's like the French Revolution in that regard. And the American Revolution in terms of uh, democracy and uh, equal rights and written documents, uh, there's a lot, most other countries that uh, revolutions begin look to a model, and the Russian Revolution is, is one of the, the greatest models. Uh, sometimes they look to what was not done. Sometimes they look to what was done. Um, I wish they'd look back to 1905 and try to recapture that uh, incredible unity in the country that uh, brought about changes uh, in, in a constitutional monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. McFadden, uh, Martha Hall, Kelly and I were talking earlier about uh, more effective ways uh, to capture history and to remember uh, these moments in time. Often the focus is on on dates, and uh, when you have historical fiction before you, uh, you can be uh, engrossed in a story, a people story uh, around these events. Uh, When you are teaching your students, uh, how do you convey uh, uh, these very momentous occasions and why it matters to them? Well, I think uh, historical novels are an incredibly important part of teaching history, as are biographies and and memoirs. Um, One book I use in my classes on the Industrial Revolution is a wonderful book by a historical novel by a a British author named Elizabeth Gaskell called Mary Barton, which brings alive the um, Industrial Revolution better than anything else. Uh, there's a great book by a Russian emigre named Nina Berberova, who's one of those emigres from the Bolsheviks. That's a beautiful book uh, that uh, does something similar. And uh, for that matter, uh, uh, Nabokov's uh, great book uh, of his memories are very important. So memoirs, biographies, and historical fiction are all crucial to to bring alive history. Dr. David McFadden, again, is professor of history and director of the Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies program at Fairfield University. Uh, Dr. McFadden, thank you for those uh, resources, and we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. I wanted to end with uh, author Martha Hall Kelly again. Uh, the, uh, her new book, Lost Rose, is out this week. We've got a tweet from Amanda, Martha. Uh, she writes, in what order do you suggest reading these novels? I grew up in Bethlehem, and I had no idea. I'm headed to the bookstore now to pick these up. She's so excited. Oh, that's so funny. I, I, a lot of people have been asking me that. I, I like to, you know, you really can read either one if you want to um, read in the order of the events. You can start with Lost Roses. Uh, but I, there's something nice about reading it in the uh, the way that I wrote it and reading Lilac Rose first, and then you know all the characters. And then when you go back in time, uh, you, you have some frame of reference for Lost Roses. 
Well, we want to thank uh, Martha Hall Kelly for joining us today. This is a great book, and we're so excited that you're able to, to be with us again. Thank you. I, I can't wait to come back next time. Uh, again, you can get more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, and you can also read an excerpt of Lost Roses. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>